Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara is running for a third term. What will this mean for the country's stability? And there's a thriving African diaspora in Nashville, Tennessee. How should the United States government connect to this important community? Plus, we discuss U.S. policy in sub-Saharan Africa. Has there been policy continuity over the past seven decades? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara has been flirting with the third term for the past couple of years, but he finally committed a step down and named his longtime protege and former prime minister, Amadou Gonkoulibaly, as the party's candidate ahead of the elections. Now, as many of our listeners know, circumstances changed. Gonkoulibaly died of a heart-related illness at age 61. And so there was tremendous pressure on President Ouattara to run again. And on August 6th, he said that he would. Je suis donc candidat. I am, in effect, a candidate in the presidential election of October 31st, 2020. An announcement that many believe will have serious repercussions. But for some Ivorians, the declaration was not completely unexpected. And he said that even though he had promised to step down, this decision represents a sacrifice for him, but he would run. Now, a third term is not technically prohibited by the Ivorian constitution since it was amended in 2016, but it is certainly in conflict with public opinion. In fact, polling from Afrobarometer from 2016 and 2018 says that 81% of Ivorians believe that the constitution should limit the president to a maximum of two terms. Joining me to discuss Cote d'Ivoire and other topics are Ambassador Hank Cohen, former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under President George H.W. Bush, Elizabeth Schmidt, Professor Amaretis at Loyola University, Maryland, and Adebayo Oyebade, a professor of history at Tennessee State University. Elizabeth, you have a chapter in your new book, Foreign Intervention in Africa After the Cold War, about the Civil War in Cote d'Ivoire. With Ouattara now throwing his hat in the race officially, what do you think might be the consequences? Well, I think it's not good. First of all, as you said, President Ouattara had claimed that he wouldn't seek a third term, which many people deemed unconstitutional, that there would have to be a change in the Constitution to do so. He contested that there wasn't any legal issue, but there was a lot of domestic political pressure for him not to seek a third term. There's a great deal of opposition to him. There'd been a lot of protests, especially amongst the younger generation. And so he had agreed to step aside. But as you said, his handpicked successor, the person he hoped would win the elections, died suddenly. And so now there's pressure from his party for him to reconsider and to run. But He's been quite authoritarian in recent years. He's uh, lashed out against his political rivals. A number of them have been meted out with heavy prison sentences. And in the case of Guillaume Soro, who has a lot of support amongst the youth, he was tried in absentia and sentenced to 20 years in prison. So he's not in prison, but, you know, he faces charges if he comes back. And there's real fear that Soros and other supporters will react quite 
quite aggressively, perhaps violently, if Wachara runs. Some experts fear a replay of 2010 when the incumbent, who was at that point Lauren Bagbo, refused to accept the validity of the election results and to concede to Wachara, whom the international community, as well as the Cote d'Ivoire Electoral Commission, had claimed had won the elections. Now the reverse is feared, that the a different electoral commission will support the ruling party no matter what, and that Ouattara, if he, if he loses, will refuse to leave power. Yeah, let me just add a couple more details that I think builds on what you said, Elizabeth. So not only was Soro tried an abstention, but the electoral commissions barred him from running, barred uh, Blay Goudet, who was the leader of the Jeune Patriots, the Young Patriots that supported President Bagbo. They've also banned former President Bagbo for running. And there's questions even about Edie, the former president, whether he can run or at least he has to res- resign from the Constitutional Council. Uh, Ambassador Cohen, I'd like to get your thoughts on two things. First, any reactions to Elizabeth's analysis about the risks? And then you've been pretty vocal about your support for Edie and his party, the PDCI, and at least that in a free and fair election that he would win. Uh, well, I tend to agree with uh, Professor Schmidt about this. It's it's a very bad decision on, on Watara's part. And I disagree with you, Judd. The Section 183 of the 2016 Constitution prohibits more than two terms. So even though he's saying, well, I'm starting from zero under the new Constitution, it really goes against the, the basic law. And I think this will be contested in front of the Constitutional Court. He will he will probably win there because a majority of the judges were named by him. But anyway, it, you can tell that it's going against the general consensus of the people that there should not be more than two terms. I expect that he will pull out all the stops to try and win. And I think Bédier should be able to get most a majority because the PDCI party is the original party of Houphouet Boigny, the founding father. I feel that it's still the most popular. The PDCI supported Ouattara for his two terms. Therefore, uh, he won because of that. So without that support, I think he, he couldn't possibly win in a free and fair election. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, one of the things that, again, about this the Constitution, why I said it's technically permissible is because, as you noted, Ambassador Cohen, that Watar is making the argument that it doesn't apply to him, it applies to him under the new constitution, which we've seen others make the same claim. And again, I think you're right, the courts are going to rule in their, in his favor if it's, if it goes there. You know, one of the challenges I think about the PDCI winning is that the way that Ivorian elections going back into the return of multi-party democracy in the mid-90s has worked is you need a coalition between multiple parties. And so the PDCI if Bédier was going to win, would have to, you know, extend an alliance in a second round with another party. And now, and those other parties are pretty fractured as well. And then I guess there's one last point that I want to make on this section, which is what it means for democracy in this region. In 2015, almost all of the heads in West Africa, 13 out of 15, including President Ouattara, said that they support a ban on third terms. And here we are now in 2020, and Watara is going for a third term. President uh, Conde of Guinea is going for a third term. And it's a, it's a real shame. And I'm, I'm surprised and disappointed that some of the other members of uh, the West African region, whether it's 
Macky Sall of Senegal or President Asufu of Niger have not stepped up. Elizabeth, how does this comport with your understanding about sort of democratic trends? And what does this mean for West Africa, which in the last couple of years or last decade has actually been one of the more democratic regions relative to Central Africa or to East Africa? Before I answer that, may I make an, another comment on uh, Bedier and the the potential for his win based on the fact that he does have this strong PDCI machine behind sure. him? Sure, I'd love to hear the, it. Okay, because this was the party, as our listeners may know, of Houphouet Boigny, the first president of independent Cote d'Ivoire. It was in power for four decades. And Bédier was his handpicked successor. He was president of the National Assembly when Houphouet died. Prime Minister Ouattara had been an interim president and expected that he might be able to succeed Houphouet Boigny. At the time, they were both members of the PDCI. And Bédier won a lot of support by an incredibly xenophobic campaign where he manipulated ethnicity, religion, and region in order to gather support and came up with other PDCI intellectuals with the notion of of Ivoirite, which distinguished so-called authentic Ivoirians from strangers, outsiders, others. What Bédier did and Bagbo did later was to rally the, the indigenous, original indigenous inhabitants from the south and central regions against these outsiders. And they did this in order to bolster their base in economic and political hard times. It's very reminiscent of Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and, and Donald Trump in the United States, you know, rallying people against perceived outsiders in order to maintain and extend their power. And I think it's extremely dangerous. And while he could win because he controls this PDCI machine, and he does have support in the southern and central areas, it's at the expense of many other Ivoirians. The takeaway here is don't sleep on Cote d'Ivoire. We've got a pivotal country in West Africa. It's talked about as a success story with its post-conflict economic growth, but for a host of reasons that we've talked about, whether it is Watar going for a third term, flawed candidates, other candidates barred from participating. And we didn't get into a country that has more military mutinies than any other in West Africa. There's a lot of things here that require a real close look. And particularly, as I mentioned earlier, I think leadership from from ECOWAS in neighboring countries. So we'll just continue to watch this space. Now, I want to move on to another topic, and I'm really excited about this. Tennessee resettles about 1,500 refugees a year, and the majority are placed right here in Nashville. We've been doing work at CSIS on the relationship between U.S. cities and sub-Saharan Africa. I've published op-eds about Africa's significance to St. Louis, to Providence, Rhode Island. We're working on profiles for another dozen countries And so I was really excited to take advantage of Adebayo's participation on this podcast because he's he lives in Tennessee and he's done a lot of research around the diaspora community in Nashville. So Adebayo, can you talk a little bit of some of the work that you've done? You've written papers about coping with the challenges of integration, church and African immigrants in the Nashville metropolitan area, 1990 to 2005. Can you tell us a little bit about the community in Nashville and and maybe what does that tell us about 
the relationship between U.S. and African communities? Yeah, yes, I've done some work on the African immigrant community in the States, particularly its religious dimension. But first, I would like to provide a historical context to this question. The African immigrant community in the United States has seen a progressive but dramatic population increase since the last decade or the last century. Whereas African-born immigrants in the United States numbered about 800,000 in 2000, by 2010, the number had jumped to 1.7 million. So, like other immigrant groups, African immigrants face challenges in their new homes, you know, and they often turn to their own social, cultural, ethnic, and religious institutions to meet their needs. Najmi has often been referred to as New Ellis Island as a result of its uh, reputation as an emerging important hub for new immigrants, largely because of the ample social economic benefits the city offers to newcomers. As you probably know, Africans are educationally conscious. And so Nashville, with its many tertiary institutions, provides invaluable opportunity for college students. And as I said earlier, African immigrants create their own social, cultural, and religious institutions to serve their communities. The church appears to be the most important of these institutions. Easily the fastest growing African immigrant church is the Redeemed Christian Church of God, which originated in Nigeria in 1952. Uh, the North American headquarters of the church is in Dallas, Texas. In the U.S. alone, as of 2019, the church had almost a thousand parishes located in practically every state with hundreds of uh, pastors and thousands of congregants. I would just say that I think that when people think about African immigrants in their community or the diaspora, I think that they don't capture what what you're saying right now, just the richness of the contributions to Nashville, which I never knew was called the New Ellis Island. I love that. But it's a, it's a really important point about sort of how African communities bring so much to U.S. cities and, and U.S. towns. And it's, as you said, it's, it's everything from religious life to professional life. And I wonder, Hank, if when you were assistant secretary or when you were ambassador to Senegal, how did you think about engaging communities like the one Adebayo is talking about in Nashville or otherwise? What was the, what was the approach of the Bureau and the State Department when it came to African communities in the U.S.? Well, we were, as assistant secretary, I was encouraged by President Bush and Secretary Baker to travel inside the U.S. and talk to U.S. communities to let them know what's going on in foreign policy. And no matter where I went, the World Affairs Council, Committee on Foreign Policy, no matter which town, there were always African diaspora who came to, to listen to me and then engage me afterward. And the most prolific were the Liberians. In every town that I ever visit, the Liberians had their own committee, and they always insisted that I come afterward to have supper with them and that sort of thing. Also, the Nigerians are very active. I recently met a Nigerian medical doctor at the University of West Virginia, and he's in charge of urology. And I said, how many are you here? 
He said, we're 10,000 medical doctors from Nigeria, and we have an association. 10,000 in West Virginia. Not in West Virginia, and all over the United States. It is noteworthy to mention that a Nigerian-American councilwoman, Zulfat Suara, was elected in September last year in Nashville as an at-large council member, becoming the first Nigerian-American woman to be elected to any office in the United States. So Nigerians and other Africans are really contributing, you know, to America's development in all areas of life. Baltimore, where I live, is also a major resettlement area for refugees and asylees, as well as immigrants who come for other reasons. This was a conscious strategy, not only out of human humanitarian concern, but a conscious strategy of the city to rebuild its economy as the city was being depopulated. And it's been amazingly successful. The youth from these families have been extraordinarily adept at learning English and, and climbing through the academic system, have graduated from high school as valedictorians of their classes, won incredible scholarships to university. And there's just one success story after another. And then other immigrants have been extremely important in our city's healthcare system in many different capacities. But without without immigrant doctors and physician assistants and 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 nurses and other medical staff, our high, our hospitals would not be running. I think you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. And this is, you know, some of the work, why we're doing this work is because I think the stories that you're sharing, that Hank is sharing, that Adebayo is sharing are so important. And they're particularly important when you have travel bans. And I think we have, uh, you know, an important conversation right now about, about race in America is really to elevate diaspora voices in the United States and also explain to their neighbors and others in America, what important contributions they're making. The same points that you're making about Baltimore, I'm in the midst of researching Boise, Idaho, and I'm finding very similar stories. So stay tuned for more from our program on this issue. It is going to be a huge part of our work from now until the end of the year. Let's move to the final conversation, and I couldn't be more fortunate to talk to three people who have really dedicated their careers to studying or formulating U.S.-Africa policy. Our listeners may know that I'm actually in the middle of, of doing my own work right now on the history of U.S. intelligence analysis, so we're going to try really hard, really hard not to nerd out here, but I'm just giving a, a fair warning to our listeners Hank, you entered the Foreign Service in 1955. You served seven U.S. presidents. Your illustrative career includes ambassador to Senegal, NSC senior director for Africa under President Reagan, assistant secretary for African affairs under President Bush, 41. And you've argued elsewhere that there is a lot of policy continuity in the U.S.-African relation, even, even under President Trump. So I'd love it if you could walk us through some of the key takeaways from your, your great book and then maybe help us think for some of the themes of continuity and change. Well, yeah, thank you for asking that. One thing about my research revealed was that the Cold War from the Second World War on till about till the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989-1990 had nothing to do with Africa. President Eisenhower in 1956 had a very strong debate in the National Security Council. What should our policy be toward the newly emerging African countries? Secretary of State 
argued for a Cold War. You're with us or you're against us. Vice President Nixon argued, well, let them be neutral. And Eisenhower said, yes, Africans should be neutral. Keep them out of the Cold War. And the U.S. government adhered to that right till the end of the Cold War. So what if Cold War wasn't our issue, what was? And it was economic development. And the problem with economic development is we didn't know what we were doing. Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, and the president who's been the most creative has been G.W. Bush, Bush 43. He started the Millennium Challenge Corporation. He did PEPFAR to keep people alive who had HIV AIDS. And he... He, he worked on a, a number of other issues. He changed our policy from loans to grants, you see. So if you ask any African intellectual who was the best U.S. president for Africa, they will say G.W. G. Bush. Okay, well, what about President Trump? He has not changed anything. You know, he has made a point of changing everything that Obama did. Well, Obama started two very important projects. One was Power Africa, help Africa get investments in power generation, which they badly need. And secondly, he started Feed the Future, which is to help Africa modernize their agriculture. President Trump hasn't touched it. He's left it alone. So what? And he's also added something called Prosper Africa, which is to encourage U.S. investment as competition with, uh, with the Chinese. So in general, no... U.S. policy has been the same, economic development, economic development, experimentation, experimentation. So far, we haven't made much progress, but it's the same policy with every administration. All right. Well, let me, I have two reactions, Hank, that I'd like you to, to respond to. So I'm well aware of the Eisenhower approach and certainly the Kennedy approach. I think that some of our listeners would have challenged uh, believing that the U.S. policy, especially under President Reagan, wasn't about the Cold War, and particularly around Angola uh, and Mozambique, or our support for President Mobutu. And then I think that under President Trump, again, I think he has made such a strong emphasis around China as being sort of the cornerstone of the way that he's thought about Africa. Now, I completely agree with you on the initiatives around trade and investment both on, are, are promising across all administrations. And I think Prosper Africa has some challenges, but I think, you know, it's trying to do the right things. This point about that he hasn't changed uh, any of the assistance, we have to give credit here to Congress for blocking the president's attempts to cut some of that aid. So it's the interplay between the legislature and the executive that have protected some of these legacy programs, not necessarily the president's intent. I mean, what do you? What would you say to that? No, I would agree with you. But uh, on the Cold War in Angola, this was not Cold War. This was a Cuban issue. The Cubans came in to help the party in power in Angola stay in power, the Marxist MPLA. And because of the feeling in Florida about Cuba and that sort of thing, uh, we had no choice but to uh, help other parties like the UNITA group and the FNLA fight the fight the Cubans. I, I call that the exception in the, in our non-Cold War policy. And that, that ended when we negotiated the peace agreement in Angola. So I, I really don't see any uh, U.S. invoking of strategic interests in Africa. It's, it's only been uh, 
essentially uh, economic side. That was important. May, may I respond to this too? Yes, please, please. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I would like to contest Hank's characterization of Angola and the Congo, though I do agree with him that there have been an enormous continuities in American policy, both during the Cold War and after. It did not change significantly in terms of the fundamental perspective from one presidential administration to another, be they Republican or Democratic. But in terms of Angola, here I think is a good example of we talk the talk of democracy, but we don't walk the walk of democracy. And uh, the Congo is another example of that, where, yes, we use the uh, the rhetoric of self-determination, free choice of government. But if a government is elected that we don't like and we feel that it's threatening to our political, economic and strategic interests, we do intervene to support often very repressive movements or regimes that will protect what we claim are our national interests, even if they undermine the choice of the local people. So in the case of Angola, I think the timeline is extremely important. There was a peace accord between three different groups that had fought for independence from Portugal, which at that point was actually a fascist power. And so when the party that seemed to be dominant was winning, the United States decided that, and that was the Marxist-Leninist MPLA, the United States teamed up with apartheid South Africa in, in covert actions to undermine this party and to throw support, military support, to the other two parties, FNLA and UNITA. It wasn't until the South Africans invaded and they were our parties in this. They were our partners. They invaded with South African Defense Force troops as well as mercenaries that the Cubans came. And this is a Cold War issue, right? It's it's Marxist Cuba. So it, I don't define the Cold War only as the Soviet Union, but any power that is communist or perceived to be communist by the United States. And then the U.S. and South Africa went full force against the MPLA. The Cubans outspent them, outmanned them, and eventually the MPLA was able to be the victor in that. And so, again, this is the case where the U.S. said, well, whatever whatever the people want, we'll, we'll respect, but oh, not now because it's against our interests. The Congo and Mobutu is another example. Patrice Lumumba was elected prime minister. He was considered to be a communist by the United States. He was not a communist, but he was a radical nationalist who wanted to change the distribution of wealth to benefit not foreign companies and the, the former colonial power, but to uh, provide services, education, health, et cetera, for the local people. And the U.S. teamed up with Belgium to remove Lumumba from power and facilitated his assassination, his his killing by local groups that were his opponents. But the U.S. helped to deliver him into their hands, as did Belgium. Mobutu was a, a military dictator for, for decades and incredibly repressive. And we supported him almost until the end. We supported him until the Cold War because he served as our regional policeman, not only with helping us aid groups trying to overthrow the Angolan government, but with putting down other 
groups we perceived as radical, therefore as communist in the region. So I, I think it's really important to recognize the distinction between the U.S. talk of democracy and self-determination and what it actually did in Africa during the Cold War. Well, I knew this topic was going to not be able to fit within, you know, our usual 35-minute framework. And I also promised that we would get in the weeds, and clearly we have done that. And anyone wants to support us to do a mini-series just on what happened in Angola, I, we would welcome it. It would be a wonderful conversation because it is so rich in terms of what happened, and there's lots of different views as we're hearing. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring Adebayo into the conversation. So, you know, you've been writing about U.S. policy for really more than two decades. You were the editor of a book in 2014, The U.S. Foreign Policy in Africa in the 21st Century. I'd love to get your thoughts on both what we're talking about right now, but really, where do we go from here? How does the U.S. relationship with Africa evolve uh, to meet new challenges? Yeah, first, just to comment on what you discussed earlier on about Angola. I will support what Best uh, said. The U.S. supported the FNLA and UNITA, and uh, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Communist countries supported uh, MPLA. So the U.S. was fearful that um, an independent Angola would go the communist way. So I think uh, in that case, it was a cool war situation. Now, on this question of the central theme of U.S.-Africa relation, there are some themes that should continue to define U.S.-Africa relations in the present, and I'll probably just focus on two critical ones. The first is economic partnership and bilateral trade. A lot can be said about this, but let me just say that uh, this has been traditionally a critical element of U.S.-Africa relations. Gladly, this is a part of policies articulated in a statement issued by the Trump administration in December of 2018. This policy proposed exploiting avenues of U.S. investment in Africa that would uh, mutually benefit both regions. I think America should promote investment in Africa and increase trade partnership with African states that will bring about sustainable economic development and growth in Africa. And of course, you know, with accountability by African states. Briefly, the second theme I want to mention is the issue of security and stability in Africa. I think it all goes well for the state to help Africa confront terrorism on the continent because this can actually impact homeland in some way. Or of course, we know about Boko Haram in Nigeria, you know, ISIS in Africa and some other groups. So I think what Africa needs is assistance in developing its own capabilities you know, to deal with terrorism and other security issues. I just want to add that these two important themes are not new in U.S. foreign policy towards Africa. Again, I think it's a good thing that they are enshrined in the Trump administration strategy. But right now, there seems to be a gap between rhetoric and action. The Trump administration does not seem to understand you know, the demands of uh, Africans and does not wish to see Africa as an important you know, sector of the of the Tayoko community. So uh, it would be good if the United States pursues these two policies rather than just talking about, about them. Elizabeth, how does how do you square the difference between, you know, your comments about some of the challenges on the war on terror and Adebayo's recommendation that the U.S. help African countries build their capacity, particularly as it relates to security assistance? You know, what is the way to do it so it's productive and not counterproductive? 
First, I, I think that we need to, to, to recognize that um, military solutions are not the answer to what we perceive as terrorism, because we're not really getting at the root of what is causing many of these conflicts in Africa. And many of the conflicts are the result of governments that have neglected certain areas or marginalized certain areas, favored one region or ethnic group over another. And the grievances are really between the haves and the have-nots. And so the solutions are a lessening of inequality, the provision of healthcare, jobs, opportunities to the general population without discrimination. And that as long as we give military support to governments that are using that support, not only against international terrorist groups, but against local civilian populations, we are going to, to run into serious trouble. But you could do both, right? I mean, Hank, could, how do you think about doing both of the things that Elizabeth, that what Elizabeth is talking about, addressing inequality um, and making sure that countries respect human rights and also do what Adebayo is talking about, which is build, you know, security capacity. Can you do both of those things effectively? Is it possible to have the right outcomes by just doing one of them? I would agree with Elizabeth that uh, much of the terrorism, uh, especially in the Sahel, which is which is the main uh, center of terrorism right now, there's a strong socioeconomic base. The people in the north have been totally neglected, you know, the Fulani and the Tuaregs, by the governments in Bamako and in uh, Niamey. And that's why they've been attracted by terrorism. So far in the Sahel, I don't see where the U.S. has done much of that. But the leadership is mainly French in the anti-terrorism fight. So I would agree with Elizabeth. We have to move swiftly and decisively into economic side and development side as a complement or even as a dominant element in the fight against terrorism. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, so we're running out of time, but I wanted to give Hank the last question, in part because we've just released a paper on how I think about sort of a framework for U.S. policy towards Africa. But one of the points that I make in this paper is around thinking about Africa's global influence. And you have this great vignette in your new book about how Secretary Baker engaged with Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, and the DRC when it came to the Iraq war in the 1990s. All of those countries sat on the Security Council. They were critical for getting support for the U.S. And the, the interaction between both you, Hank, and the Secretary, and then you and the Secretary and Cote d'Ivoire's foreign minister is really interesting. Can you, can you tell everyone about that and maybe what are the lessons that you drew from that? Yeah, well, we went to Geneva together because we wanted to get the votes of the Security Council to make war against Iraq, who had invaded Kuwait. We wanted to get them out of Kuwait. And we needed those three votes. So at the meeting in Geneva, Mobutu's representative said, Mobutu instructed me to say, we'll help you. The Ethiopian representative, Foreign Minister Tesfai Dinka, he said, well, you guys are helping us mediate the Eritrean war. We're going to help you on this one. So you have our vote. But then the Cote d'Ivoire foreign minister, uh, his name was Amara Essi. He came in and he said, well, you know, Hufut Boigny, he doesn't like war. So it's very hard for us to vote in favor of a war. And we really uh, want to think about that. So uh, Secretary Baker made the argument, look, we don't want to make war either. I, I went to see Saddam Hussein. I tried to persuade him to get out of Kuwait. 
but he refused. So we have no choice. We have to free the people of Kuwait. They, they've been invaded. So as he said, okay, I'll take that back to Hufwet uh, Boigny and see what he says. And he says, by the way, I have a grievance. Oh, oh, what is your grievance? He says, every time I come to Washington, the only person I can see is the Secretary Cohen. I'm foreign minister. I can see, I should be able to see higher than that. I like Secretary Cohen, but he, he's lower than me. So Baker said, look, next time you come to New York on UN business, give me a call and I'll send a, pri I'll send a government plane to pick you up. So that seemed to satisfy him. And he went back and within a few days, we got the approval from Hufwet Bonnie that they would vote for us too. But January came and they have rotation on Security Council. And, and Zaire, that, as Congo was then called, left, and in comes Zimbabwe. And we said, oh, my God, President Mugabe is the best friend of Saddam Hussein in the non-aligned movement. What is he going to do? So I went quickly to Zimbabwe, and I was received by Mugabe, and I, I made the pitch. I said, look, this is blatant aggression. They've invaded Kuwait. They should not be allowed to do that. And he thought about it, and then he said, uh, Secretary Cohen, I've decided that great powers should not be invading weak powers. Therefore, I'm going to vote with you at the UN Security Council. So, so it was a successful thing. But the whole thing is that the Africans, like us, they don't believe in, you know, big powers invading small powers. They're very vulnerable themselves. So in general, I think the U.S. and the Africans uh, see eye to eye on a lot of good things. I think the reason I asked you to, to share this, one, I think it illustrates the importance of African voices and votes in, on, on global issues. But I think what Foreign Minister Essay said was really important, too. Right. I'm a foreign minister. How come I don't meet? with my counterparts. And if we don't treat African dignitaries at the appropriate level with the, you know, then it does have these negative effects and uh, consequences when we try to push global issues. So I think it's a, a really good story. And if you read, if you purchase Hank's book, I think you'll find a number of them. I, I wanted to talk to about what, uh, how the U.S. and Russia helped push along the Angola peace process and the, the elections, but I guess we'll have to do that on another show. So let me thank all of our guests for joining us, and we'll, have a, we'll be up in two weeks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.